Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Tour Daily Podcast, everybody. We're out here on some large granite steps out front of the center of Congress here in Lausanne. That's Congress We're, Center in English? The Congress Center. Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you for the translation, uh, Ronan. We are here after stage. I'm pretty sure it was eight. I'm going to double check. Yep. 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 There we go. <laughs> that was stage eight. And uh, they finished up about 90 minutes, two hours ago. Bit of a predictable, well, most of the stage, but a really exciting finale and some great kind of storylines. We chatted with Fred Wright, who ended up in the breakaway all day, uh, kind of the first time he'd been let off the leash at the Tour de France thus far, and he, he seemed to enjoy his day out, I would say. Uh, and a phenomenal victory from Watt Van Aert, who, along with Tadej Pogacar, I mean, really, they're just, they're, those two are just in a class of their own at this point. So we're going to talk through today's stage. And then, Johnny, you sat down with Pippa once again to talk through the GC. So we'll get to that later, later in the episode. But let's kick things off with what happened today. Johnny, what happened today? What happened today? Well, first of all, after all our Balcomonoma talk yesterday... Uh, the riders, some riders were telling you this morning, Kaylee, that today was definitely not going to be a breakaway day. And then, uh, I, I'm pretty sure you, went, he, you or he went when we saying this, but Mitch Docker, you chance him and he was like, honestly, I don't know what is and isn't a breakaway stage anymore because it's all just topsy-turvy, upside down. The rules have changed. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's that, I've been sort of chatting with folks about that for the last day or two and, and going to get a story out sometime probably tomorrow, I would think about the ways in which they have changed and, and, and the fact that, well, that even people like Mitch Docker, who was in the Pro Peloton until last October, still can't fully figure out exactly what's going to be a breakaway day. But yeah, there, there was a bit of, there was a bit of uh, questioning today as to what exactly would go down. I think that actually Ronan and I, when we were walking around this morning, we kind of decided, we changed our minds from last night and decided that it was going to be a bunch sprint, at the, or not bunch sprint, but you know, essentially the way that it, it finished up today, that the, the break would not make it, because we walked past the bike exchange bus and we were like, oh, wait. <laughs> I think They're going to keep it together. <laughs> that, that was just the moment that clicked for us, and I think that is a part of the explanation as to why it's just gone out the window, is because riders like Michael Matthews, who previously would have had plenty of stages to choose from, now because of the likes of Wout van Aert, Matthew van der Poel, and, the, and all the riders they got, the stages that Michael Matthews and another Peter Sagan and his heyday and riders like that, where they couldn't quite win a bunch sprint, but they could win a tougher day. And, you know, previously where those tougher days might have went to the breakaway, now the likes of Michael Matthews just have to take every opportunity they possibly can get. And yes, twice Michael Matthews has thought he could pull off a stage one in his funny second twice, once behind Pogaccia, who who's one of these guys can do it all, once behind Van Aert today, one, another guy who can do it all. He said it's his turn, though. <laughs> it's his that turn. Was, that was the quote. I, I finished once, a uh, second behind Pogaccia and second behind Van Aert, and next turn, ne I'm next in line, or something like that. Yeah. And that, you know, that next in line, that could be the next day that, on paper, a couple of years ago would have been a breakaway day, but now because these sort of phenomenal riders are eating up so many different stages there's just the uh, what we see now transpiring is that it actually reduces the amount of opportunities for the breakaway because there's always a team who have still missed out in a stage one but have a rider like michael matthews and bring it back together like we've seen today we didn't finish our stage recap though johnny how did how did the last couple k go what did we end up with on the climb, uh, UAE took it up. It was Rafa Micah on the on the front again. We didn't we didn't have the the big old wave, the windmill wave to to see his team leader come through for Pog, but then it kind of got swamped a bit uh, before the sprint unfolded. You had uh, Michael Matthews up there, then Wout Van Aert. I mean, no one's on his current form. No one's really beating him if he decides that he wants to win one of these stages. So he took the stage victory, Wout Van Aert. Michael Matthews, as you said, set for second. The yellow jersey today, Pogaccia in third, which he was happy with picking up an extra four bonus seconds. Just list out a couple of the names of the top 10, but more briefly, so I don't get moaned at for being too thorough in my stage explanation. Andreas Kronos, Sudal, Alberto Betio, 
in fifth, Vlasov sixth, Benjamin Tomav, Kofidis seventh, Vingegaard eighth, Bob Youngles ninth. He had a little hit out, which was he did. quite unexpected. And then in tenth, we had Tom Pidcock, who said that he wanted to maybe do something on this stage, but in the end didn't really have the, the legs for the sprint, but still an impressive, another impressive top 10 for him in his debut tour. I'm going to stop you right there because we do have a sponsor of today's episode. We are supported today by Velocio Apparel. Velocio Apparel is driven by finding a better way in cycling apparel. From unrivaled performance to sustainable fabrics, Velocio guarantees it will improve your cycling experience or you can return it for a full refund. Try any Velocio Apparel piece and return it for a full refund with no questions asked within 30 days if you aren't completely satisfied. Now here's the best part. Listeners to this podcast can try Velocio right now using the code CYCLINGTIPS20. That's CYCLINGTIPS, the number 20, for 20% off their first order. Learn more at Velocio.cc. Thanks to Velocio for sponsoring today's episode. Now, back to the racing. Ronan. I was right outside the Team UAE bus when when riders started coming in after the finish, and it was quite interesting just to hear the conversation between Brand McNulty and Raphael Micah. We've seen Micah on the front there with McNulty directly behind him and then Pogaccio on McNulty's wheel with about a K to go or so. And it wasn't a heated discussion, but McNulty came in and he was trying to explain something to Micah that I'd been saying to ease back, ease back, ease back. But Micah was explaining, well, I couldn't hear you because of the crowd. Um, and then they made this... Well, because McNulty basically popped off second wheel and yeah. made Pogacar close a gap, which is not really what you're hoping for in that moment. Exactly. That's the, kind of the worst case scenario if you expose your leader like that and he has to make an effort just to just to get the, the wheel in front. But the, the funny thing and the interesting thing was that McNulty's comment to Micah was, and then we had... And then we had today behind us, and he always wants more, 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 full gas, full gas. So <laughs> that gives you a bit of an insight into what those guys have to deal with. That you know, just regardless of how hard they're finding it, Pogaccia always wants more, we're, always wants faster. We're, we're gonna we're gonna see at some point later in the race, Rafa Micah just turn around and be like, "I'm trying." <laughs> <laughs> what more do you want? <laughs> and I'm going I, as fast as I can. <laughs> Interesting as well, just on Pidcock, another name you finished, you mentioned there in the top 10. He he was explaining in one of the interviews he did post-race that he thinks he, you know, the question was put to him, do you think where you would normally be up in a finish like this, the Tour de France is just another level. He said that he thought he was at that level, but it was more a case of everybody wants Van Aert and Pogaccia's wheel. And so he is finding it difficult to get himself into position because that's the way he wants. Yeah. But there's so many other riders fighting for it. Matthew's got it today. Matthew's got it today and Pitcock didn't. And, you know, that part, perhaps part of why uh, Pitcock hasn't quite pulled off the maybe podium finish that we might expect to see from him on, on a stage. I guess, you know, you think about Brabant Sapel and things like that. Finish today was similar to that, probably longer today, but certainly a finish that would suit Pitcock on, on paper. Um, and again, two days ago when Pogaccio won was another finish that should suit him on paper. But just maybe, you know, first tour and getting used to all that and then having to fight for the wheels. Just just playing, catching up with him, I guess. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that he's underperformed, really. No, uh, no, definitely not. But He's in the white jersey. <laughs> yeah, but I think that he's often mentioned in the same breath as, as Van Aert and Vanderpool because he's done similar things off-road. Uh but I think that this tour, at least for now... At least well, they, I mean, yeah, they're so much older. Was that? They're so much older They're, they're well. significantly older than he is. And that, that is worth remembering is that for some reason in my head, Van Aert and, and Van Der Poel are still like 23, but they're not. They're, they're at the absolute peak of their careers, 27, eight, 20, 27, 28 years old. And Pitcock is, what, five years younger at this point? Yeah. Something like that? Uh, so he, he has some time to kind of catch up and follow the same trajectory, but he's just not... He's obviously not quite there yet. I mean, I, frankly, no one is quite there. Like, the, 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 one of the wild things about this Tour de France to me is it's essentially been a storyline, two storylines of two riders, right? We've got Tadej Pogacar and Wolfenart, and they appear to be just head and shoulders above everybody else that is in their respective areas, right? You, you know, whether that's GC or, or sort of stage hunting. 
they're just so much better. And actually, chatting on the way, were we chatting about this earlier? But if Watt Van Aert had a slightly different body type, if he was a bit lighter, was it not with you? Anyway, oh no, I was chatting with Andy McGrath over at, at Velenews. If he had a bit different body type, he feels like the only other sort of supernatural talent in this bike race. It'd be it'd be an interesting. It's just an interesting sort of thought experiment. If he was a bit lighter, would we have two Pogacars in this race? What I really like is that in his press conference today, Wout van Aert was asked, you know, you're in the green jersey now, uh, but tell us about when you were growing up. Were there any of the riders who wore the green jersey? If if you looked up to them, and he was like. Oh, to be honest, no. Like ray racing wasn't really my thing. Like I, I found watching bunch prints at the Tour de France like quite boring. And it's just it, like maybe it speaks to what Ronan's been pointing out on this podcast, where he sees Wat Van Aert as some unfeeling, walking brand advertisement for whichever energy drink will will stump up the most well, cash. Well, but it was quite funny. Uh, it was it was really funny, and he, he basically just said I didn't find sprinting particularly interesting until I was a sprinter. Yeah, that's that's bas that's literally actually what he said. He, he said until he f he was you know in these finales fighting for wheels, elbows out, that adrenaline rush, he didn't really enjoy. He actually said that he didn't enjoy sprint stages. When he was he, like, oh, she's last five k, like boring, nothing to watch. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> it was great. Like no one, everyone, everyone the whole month, all the riders spend the whole time bigging up the Tour de France and how special it is, which is true. And obviously we all think that, but it's just nice to have that sort of tonic where, where everyone's just like, look, yeah, sprint stages are kind of boring sometimes. But he is a hundred percent right as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, ref it's refreshing though to hear. But you know, he, he's he's quite good in the press conferences. He also made a joke about about uh, slathering his face in in yeah, that was good disinfectant. Yeah, that was good. <laughs> in hand sanitizer. Yeah, which uh, we don't want to we don't want to really dwell on COVID on this podcast, but it does feel like something has shifted over the last mm. 36 hours. There were two COVID positives this morning, two riders out of the race, uh, one on UAE and one on AG2R, yeah. Bouchard. Um, but more broadly, it just feels like feels like we're on the edge of a precipice, I think. The, the teams yeah. kind of were a little bit more locked down this morning. There's a sense that it may already be too late. That essentially the bubbles were not firm enough because that they, they, they frankly they you know we've experienced bubbled tours de France over the last couple of years, and this isn't one. Like it's basically back to normal, uh, with a couple extra masks, and there's a sense that it maybe is too late and that we might we might have a bit of a rough rest day when the PCR tests come back in. But I don't want to dwell on that. We're 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 going to save that topic for some written pieces and and keep that bad juju out of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> what else? What else we're talking about today? Fred Wright w had a, had a great ride, and and frankly, he's just a rider that we like, and so we like talking about him. Johnny, you know him better than I do. Yeah, I mean, when you I started like reporting out bike races when he began in the World Tour, and he's a he's a fellow Brit, which always makes it easier to like talk and talk properly with riders of your own nationality. He's also only like a few years younger than me. I say a few years, he's four years younger than me. It doesn't feel that that big a gap. Um, and you know he's, he's a guy. He's probably one of, as a as a journalist, as a reporter on at bike races. You you're trying to sort of build rapport with with riders because that's how you, you build relationships. Is how you get the best stuff. You you tell the stories better. Um, and he's someone who you know you always chat to. And he is just a nice guy. I mean, it's obviously coming from a place of complete bias because I know him better than a lot of French riders or Italian riders or Spanish riders. I had never spoken with him until today, and he was a very nice guy. So I yeah, confirm. he's down to earth. At the start, at the start of the race, when all the Bahrain victorious anti-doping raids were coming on, he willingly spoke about that. He, he's just he just upfront guy. He just likes his bike racing. He's always quite optimistic, which I like as well. He was remarkably sort of calm about not getting the most competitive rider award today. Okay, he was down there. He was pretty annoyed about it. I think he, he, it, the, when I talked to him, he yeah, I mean he wasn't like. He wasn't pissed off. He wasn't stomping around. He wasn't anything like that. He was kind of resigned to the fact. But he basically said that apparently the decision was made too early. The decision was made when he was still with Cataneo. And maybe Cataneo knew this. I don't know. Maybe that's why he pulled the plug after that. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, you know, it's down to him and Cataneo. And Cataneo ended up getting the, the most aggressive rider for the day, which means he got to go on the podium, et cetera, et cetera. Fred Wright just sulked back to his bus after 200... 100 whatever kilometers 170 of, 170 so. something kilometers of of breakaway 
yeah, he was like I said, he wasn't pissed about it. He was just sort of he was annoyed that the decision had been made essentially just at the because, wrong time for him. Because normally it's the last man standing gets that award. And immediately after that decision was made, he then dropped Catanio. Uh, and was the last rider standing, was only caught in the, on the final climb to the finish. And it did strike me at the time that it's strange that Caterno got it instead of Fred Wright, who was still out in front when the announcement was made, I think. And it is a big deal as well, you know, to get up on a Tour de France podium, it's often the sort of... shot. Yeah, it's nah, often the... Really. No, nah. he'll do it, he'll do it. Well, well, the thing is as well, he, this is his second year in the world, second or third year in the world tour. Third year in the World Tour, but he's made steps each year. This year he was seventh at Flanders, which was a, a big achievement for him. He was getting noticed by Belgians um, later at Paris-Roubaix. And I'll, this guy, who was seventh at Flanders, which Fred Wright likes, he's now made the next step, you feel, in making the breakaway at, at the Tour de France. He's part of this generation of young British guys, um, like a uh, few of the people at Ineos alongside Pidcock, alongside Ethan Hayter. He lives in a house in the UK with Ethan Hayter and Borhans grows Matt Walls. So it's kind of a whole burgeoning new generation of British talent, which isn't Surely just Grand Tour winners. Surely he can afford not to live with roommates at this point. What I like is that they're, they're like, <laughs> my view of it is that they're trying to recreate the sort of British uni experience. Ah. So like, I think in lockdown, they played a lot of Call of Duty together. Um, <laughs> And I think they, I think they, maybe they live in Manchester. I can't remember exactly, but they, they're sort of doing that whole roommate thing where it probably is quite nice though. You spend so much time out races in hotels and stuff, and then you go home and yeah, and particularly with your if, mates. If, if they don't have some other partner to go home to, it, yeah, it'd be it'd be it'd be kind of a lonely. Existence, 23, is, you know, yeah. this is what I've been hanging on to for ages. Like live with your buddies as long as possible. <laughs> well, I hate it. Live with your buddies until they're no longer your buddies. Yeah, that, that's a separate, that, that is a problem, but that's a separate conversation, not for a podcast. It's an hour after we finished recording the podcast. We've made our way to our hotel in Vevey, sitting at a restaurant just outside looking over Lake Le Mans. It's by far the best place we've stayed so far this tour, so everyone's in high spirits. But more interestingly, we've heard from a friend of the podcast and father of Fred Wright, Phil Wright, who shared with us a short audio diary of what it's like to watch your son make the breakaway in the Tour de France for the first time in his career. So here's Phil. Yeah, what an awesome ride. Um, we were, we saw him at the start. We were, we were in Dole at the start. We just went to say goodbye. He said, oh, I might get in the break as he came down from the bus. And we were like, oh no, we're driving back today. We're not going to watch it. Um, but we did watch it. Becca was sitting next to me in the car as I was driving. She was watching and describing it to us. Um, um, I mean, it was fantastic because it was kind of hopeless. And we knew it was hopeless. And they knew it was hopeless, but they still went for it. And when they had that dig, they kind of got together and said, come on, let's go now. We were screaming in the car. And then we started, We stopped to watch the last, whatever it was, I don't know, 10, 20. And the fact that he was the last man standing, I mean, it was awesome. Absolutely awesome. What a, what a sort of brave do or die effort. Um, and we, yeah, we were weeping in the service station. <laughs> somewhere in France, uh, around a little phone in our tiny little car with our Bromptons in the back. Um, I'm now hoarse. Um, and yeah, what, what a terrific ride. Very proud of him. And once again, he surprises us. Keeps doing it. He's going to keep surprising us. I think we should move into GC talk because, well, we, we haven't chatted with Pippa in a little while. And Johnny, you caught up with her today. Before we do, real quick. This episode is also brought to you by Factor Bikes. Founded with a commitment to innovation and performance, Factor produces lightweight bikes totally dedicated to helping you go faster. Factor designs and produces all their carbon bikes in their own factory, ensuring a complete focus on quality and attention to detail. It's something you can feel on every ride. You can discover more about Factor's road, gravel, and mountain bikes by visiting factorbikes.com. Dot com. That is factorbikes.com. Now, let's hear from Pippa. So I'm currently sat in the Tour de France press room in Lausanne in Switzerland. They've got um, organic ice cream. They've got IPA beer in a bottle. And I've found Pippa York. Pippa, since we last had you on the podcast... How's your Tour de France been? I've been getting more and more tired. I think Tadi Pogacar has knocked, knocked this stuff in out of me as well. Um, not only is he dominating the race, but he seems to be dominating my thoughts, and it's just worn <laughs> me out. So I think you know that the, the, the people don't realize how much traveling there is. Mm. And um, yeah, it gets really, really tiring. 
Mm. But I shouldn't complain because I'm not pedaling. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I think of it, yeah. Um, speaking of Pogaccio, I mean, last last time when we... I think last time we spoke, we were in Denmark, just before we were leaving. What did we speak in France? No, we spoke in... We were in the meat market. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the meat the meatpacking district is um, now a distant memory. But yeah. but then we were, we were sort of um, thinking forward to... Pogaccio being in yellow again and I mean it's not that big of a surprise but he, he is in the race leads but is that a surprise to you at, at this early stage in the race? No I think what was more significant was the stage he won before he won La Planche de Belfi mm. I can't even remember where it was Longwy? Yes So at the top of that small small hill um, that was probably more significant in, in terms of um, laying down a kind of statement of you know mm-hmm. his, his intent because everybody expected him to win on La Planche de Belfi so to, from, to win that sprint from Michael Matthews and, and the way he did it you know put t- 10 metres into him straight away on the acceleration so that, I, that was more more significant than, than yesterday although yesterday was proper mm. <laughs> a proper job in, the, in, the, in finishing off the, the work that the team had done but it it wasn't a given that he was going to actually catch Vingigo, so yeah, hats off to him. Because um, Ronan was mentioning in the car on the drive to Switzerland, he was talking about how yesterday UAE put in quite a lot of work, and to put in that work, they must have been feeling pretty good about Pagacha. And then he didn't he, he didn't take that much time. It was only really bonus seconds, I think they took in the end. Do you think they would have come away from that? But beforehand, they were thinking we'll get a lot more time here. They probably hope for more time, but you know that it's not that long enough for people to crack. So it wasn't yeah. really that hard before, even though they were riding 50k an hour average. Um, and the hill itself, it, it goes up in steps, so you've got time to recover. And it was only really if they set a really manic tempo from the front, and it, that never happened. So then it comes down to the sprint, and as we saw, you said Michael led into the hmm. where the gravel started, and Bogatcha took took over, and then it was a matter of can he win the sprint, which isn't always a given. Hmm. Um, and yeah, he did. But um, yeah, I think they expected to to try and win the stage, and when you ride in GC, every second counts. So that he took hmm. the bonus, and he took an extra couple of seconds from Jonas um, yeah I think that was they finished off the day really well but with Jonas I mean he afterwards we after the race stage yesterday uh, Pogaccio was saying how Jonas is obviously one of the best climbers in, in the world maybe the maybe perhaps the best mm-hmm. that's obviously maybe Pogaccio trying to dampen down how, how dominant he is and could still be for the rest of the tour but how how do you see him shaping up because he did he did gap Pogacar on that climb. How do you how do you see how that finale played out? I don't. So they they just left it to UAE to set the set the, the pace, and obviously everybody was happy with that because it was fast enough. So sometimes when you're in that role and you're setting the pace, you're just going fast enough to discourage everybody because it hurts, mm. and you can go slightly harder and blow, um, and that only really kind of happened towards the end when you know. So Brandon McNulty did his big turn. And then Rafa Mika t- took over, and then it's up to Pogacar to win the sprint. But I don't think they said a, a, a totally manic, you know, speed up the hill like we'd seen from sometimes from Sky or Ineos. You know, there wasn't a, it wasn't a complete line out. The, the people who got dropped were already tired, mm. and everybody else they, they lost time just on that acceleration onto onto the gravel. So. I don't think they wanted to show show how strong they're. You have to remember it's three weeks, and, and you eventually catch up. All those efforts catch up with you. So, I don't think they wanted to show just where they are. You know, if they have to ride a whole fifteen kilometer or twenty kilometer climb. And we'll move on to the teams in a second. But UAE this morning, uh, before the stage, they announced that Langen had uh, tested positive for COVID, so he's out of the race. How big a... Because he was sort of the, their main guys for the flats. So how, how do you see that impact in the race, especially when everyone is talking about they're going to try, they're going to have to really take the race to UAE and, and UAE are going to need riders to chase? Uh, so to lose somebody that strong who can ride 80, 100 kilometres on the, on the flat on their own it is it could be quite significant. But it depends on who goes in the, in the breaks from the start. You know, if nobody goes, it's of any importance. Um, but then they don't have to chase, and if somebody does go, who's you, um, 
who they have to kind of look after who's maybe at five six minutes just close it down straight away you know if they've got the resources you know sometimes it starts off pretty fast and then there's you know guys lost everywhere but once you get into this second week there's a lot of residual tiredness and mm. then you know it's a matter of just using a couple of guys each stage and, and not get into the situation where you let 10 riders go away with somebody who's at five minutes and the, and the whole thing becomes a panic if that happens. So if you're in the shoes of Vingegaard or Garant Thomas, or let's just say behind the wheel in the, the Ineos Grenadiers team car, what is your plan for the next two weeks <laughs> to get the yellow jersey off Pagacha? <laughs> I think they have to hope that he catches COVID. Mm. Um, you know, he's a Pogaccio's the strongest rider in the race. Um, he's clearly, you know, 1% or half a percent above um, Vinigo. And then the other guys, you know, they're half a percent less again, um, than, the, than Jonas. So for Ineos, it's a, they're in a really difficult position. They, they've kind of stacked everybody in, the, in, mm. the, in that group of from, you know, third to tenth or wherever they are. But... You need the strongest rider, yeah, and, and they don't have that. So then, you know, you can talk about, oh, we'll have two guys go up the road, but they—it's it's not a given that Booker actually lets them go because yeah. he—he's not—he's not going to be put in a situation where he's not able to to go away with any counter attack because if Ineos counter attack over the top of a, a Vingigo attack then I imagine, unless it's a really savage thing, and, and if it is, it's going to hurt the Ineos riders more than yeah. it's going to hurt um, Pogacar. So everybody will be breathless for a couple of minutes. Yeah. So they're, they're in a kind of diff difficult position where there's the, they're riding for the podium, but you know, which one of them is going to finish on the podium? Mm. Because Planche de Velfi isn't representative of doing the Galibier and the Quad Affair because you know, it's a it's a six k climb and you can kind of exist on that on on temporary form, whereas if you're climbing the Galibier uh, and then you're doing Alpe d'Huez at the end, it's a totally different game then. Yeah. So, I mean, the, yeah, Chris Froome said the same thing this morning. Really, he was like, you know, I see him t keeping the yellow all the way to Paris, and the only thing that's going to move him out of that position is a mechanical. A crash or COVID. COVID. Yeah, I wouldn't agree that. I, I, I think you know the UAE might let a break go with somebody who says, you know, they are five six minutes, but they're not a climber, mm. and then let them take over the responsibility. But it all, it, it all comes down to everybody's watching UAE and what mm. they do, and um, they're going to have to assume some responsibilities for how the race goes. But it, if a break goes and say a French guy takes the jersey yeah. or whatever, that, that's ideal for them. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they could always almost play that scenario out. Mm. And for Jumbo Visma, they don't, they don't quite have the same uh, situation as Ineos where they've got a few riders still within touch and distance. They've got Vingegaard, the close challenge, and they've got Roglic two and a bit and two and a half, two, maybe more minutes back. Did they just have to keep Jonas as close as possible and then hope that Pagacha has a bad day, which maybe he's never had? <laughs> For as for as far as we've been aware of him, Do they, is that their plan? And then hopefully they get to one of those big climbs. And I think they, they're going to wait to see if there's a moment like Von Two last year, where mm. there's a temporary kind of weakening of yeah. what Pogacar does. But he looks stronger this year. Mm. And if I was them, you know that they want to move Roslik back up to you know over um, Thomas yeah. and the other guys at Ineos. So. Rosic is still riding for a podium place. Whether he's strong enough to go away without um, Pogacar, it's hard to say. You'll have to see how he recovers. But mm. he was okay on that yeah. yesterday. So, you know, normally he'd have been bad yesterday and worse today, but he, he seems to be okay. Indeed. Is there, when we've, when we've spoken on the podcast um, so far this year, often the re the rest of us have all just sat there sort of looking being very silent just taking in the the, the knowledge and the the insight that's being passed over is there anything in the past week that you've you've spotted but the rest of us have maybe missed is there anything that you you've taken a particular interest in me like that's that's interesting and something maybe not everyone's picked up on the, the, so there's a couple of things you know so when when Pogacar won um, in Longwy and he gapped Michael Matthews, you know, uh, an acceleration mm. which just blew him out of the wheel. 
And he looked round, you know, that's kind of telling that he's he's not exactly flat out. He's, so he, he went hard, but he isn't his mm. complete maximum. Mm. Um, and then again, we saw it yesterday when he just jumped Vingigo on the line and he looked back at him and, thought, and you could see, is that it? You know, is that is that your best? Mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's not being disrespectful, but he's thinking, yeah, you tried your best and I've still got it covered. Mm. And um, I think that kind of development of knowing he's above the other riders and it's just a matter of if, if he's attentive then he can he's always going to beat them whatever the situation mm. have you have you ever seen someone so dominant as Pogaccio we asked Matt White the other day and he said well I wasn't I, I wasn't around in cycling when Eddie Merckx was around so he like I can't I can't compare him but he, he was like in my in my days I've never seen anyone have, is there anyone that you've seen who's ever been so dominant I think there's, we're not seeing just a generational rider. We're seeing one of those guys that come along every 30 years or so, mm. really high above everybody else and able to do all the kind of aspects that you need. Um, so, yeah, so he's compared to Merckx and Hino because he's winning one-day races and he's winning yeah. um, stage races. Mm. And, you know, the guys like Injuran and Ancatil, they they didn't really win... Injuran didn't win any, you know, one-day races. He'd be competitive in some of them. Somebody would beat him. But that's not the case for, for um, Pogacar. So he'll go to a, a, a Liège or Tour of Flanders this year where he mm. messed up. Yeah. You know, he finished four and he messed up. And he, he's, he's... It's probably the first time he's been there. And it's a complete different way of riding to, 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 to be competitive there. And, and that kind of level of rider only comes along every... 30 years or so does does it surprise you that Pogaccia is so sort of mild-mannered always sort of smiling yeah. does, it, does it surprise you that he can combine being that sort of person and then being so dominant and not so nice to on the I, bike but he the thing is he's, he's not he doesn't look like he's aggressive when he rides he attacks yeah and he goes and he and he takes a certain amount of time and he looks around to see what's happened <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost as if, it's, if he's still enjoying that, he's able to ride away. It's not like he's attacking at the bottom. Okay, so last year, you know, he did that attack on um, Col du Rom, and he load, rode the last 30 kilometers or so to win this to um, to take the jersey in the rain. But um, yeah, the, the, it's, it's never that snarling mm. nastiness about him, which is totally at odds with the result yeah <laughs> and and it, it seems to kind of well surely he should be the kind of really aggressive person at the end but he yeah. just re reverts back to being that kind of kid that you'd want you know going if you had a daughter you know you think <laughs> yeah. oh he's okay you know this this guy's okay and you know he's kind of normal and you know successful but not um, bragging about it or kind of overly dominant and it's it totally at odds with what we've seen before with all the other characters. Mm. Yeah, because I, well, I guess Chris Froome is also kind of that way a bit. Like he, he's quite he's quite mild man. I mean, he have he have his moments, but yeah, but we had these moments. So he would be he would he would yeah. kind of kick off about not being team leader, and he'd be slightly snarly in the race yeah. if you bumped into him. Yeah. Whereas I don't, Pogacar doesn't seem to have that kind of snarl. No. He just kind of goes away and does his thing and looks around and. Okay, you couldn't follow. Okay, I'll just keep going then. But there's still a lot. I mean, maybe in a week we'll all be proven wrong with what everyone in this press room is writing and saying and discussing about Pogacar and Yellow by Paris predicting the future. But what are the? There are still reasons to be to be excited in in this I, tour. I don't think the the race is over because so many things can happen and we see so many kind of little silly crashes now because the the, the level of tiredness and alertness in, in the peloton. Yeah. It, you know, the tiredness gets more, and you get less alert, and you kind of fall. like we saw today, where, where Pino fell off, and then he rode into the Swanure. Mm, he was yeah. handing up a bag, you know. So that that kind of stuff happens all the time, and you you never know when that's going to happen. Yeah. So th there could be a fall for Pogacar. The guy in front of him falls, and he goes over the top of him, and he hurts himself. So that that kind of thing can always happen, or you know, so there's a bit of COVID going around still, yeah. and it's really infectious. So yeah. you might not have any symptoms, but I, I don't know what's going to happen if you've got no symptoms and, and you come up with a COVID positive. I don't know what the protocol is going to be for that. So 
I don't think the race is over. There's too many things happening in a Tour de France. I think it's a shame that we've seen Ben O'Connor disappear because he mm. was competitive at, at Dauphiné. Um, and I think that would have been kind of good for us, if, you know, for kind of natural English speakers. Yeah. You know, you've got some kind of affinity with somebody who, you know, is not their second language. Um, and it, it makes it seem kind of more international when it outside, becomes outside yeah. of Europe. Um, so, yeah, it's a, pity, it's a pity he's disappeared, but that comes down to that kind of thing where, you know, you go onto the pave and you fall off or somebody falls in front of you or whatever. Um, but there doesn't seem to be, outside of the kind of big names, you know, so Van Aert, Pogacar, Van Gogh, Rojlik, uh, there's no, we haven't yet seen a new kind of yeah. character arrive like there usually is. So we're all kind of expecting that Tom Pidcock would yeah. be that new character. And he's been good. He's been and good he's been us, good, so. but he's not been this Tom Pidcock that we ex we yeah. expect from the, the, the classic campaign. Yeah. So we're kind of waiting to see how he develops and, and, and into the second week. What happens then when we come to, you know, really big mountains? Is he, is he going to ride within himself? Is he going to one day race to his maximum? Because I don't think he's raced to his maximum yet. You know, he's been taken to t taken there, and he went, like yesterday in the sprint, and he's lost a bit of time. But I don't think he's actually decided he's going to impose that maximum on himself and see what he's capable of it at this level. Do you think also that with the absence of Alaphilippe, and maybe Ben O'Connor could have uh, fit this role riding for a French team that we're kind of missing someone for the French public to get behind in this race? Yeah, right? definitely. They they need. That's what I was saying. You, you know, you need. If you want to make make any kind of friends in France, then they 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 need to they if they pass the the baton of the the yellow jersey onto a French team, you know, especially for uh, Bastille Day on yeah. the fourteenth of July, you know, even if the, a French guy lost that day, you know, that would be massive for them that they'd have some kind of real interest, even if they're only just on a French team, you yeah. know, they, they they're kind of grasping at straws eventually. Yeah. And so. Um, yeah, that that would be. I think that would be good for the race, or at least we see some kind of French winner or really competitive. Thank you, Pippa. Thank you. As always, more sort of knowledge and insight and good opinion than the rest of us combined. So we appreciate a lot, and I'm sure we'll hear from you soon. Okay, thank you. Last fun little tidbit for today uh, was actually from today's stage is that friend of the podcast uh press officer at ef easy post and also a former velo news journalist one of my former colleagues matthew bowden uh he gave tebow pino a hug today it was just a lovely moment if you missed it on television i'm sure uh, actually i think i think mikey better who's sitting next to me on these steps i think he posted it on instagram he is nodding go check it out on our instagram feed did you speak to him about it? Did he catch him at the finish to ask him? No, Matt didn't come to the finish, so I didn't get to chat with him. But I did text him and say, did you just hug Thibaut Pino? And he said, wee wee. <laughs> <laughs> so that was him on the side of the road. For, for anybody who did miss it, uh, Pino got hit in the face by a feed bag, I think yeah. it was, from a Trek Swanier, which I don't know if that's Pino's fault or a Trek guy's fault. I don't know whose fault it was. Hard to say. But regardless, it appears to basically have squished his sunglasses like into his face really hard. I mean, he basically hit probably a yeah. multiple kilogram bag at 30K an hour or whatever they were doing. Probably not super comfortable. And he kind of like half fell off his bike into the warm embrace of Matthew Bowden. Into the warm embrace of Matthew Bowden. <laughs> Just a funny moment. Go check it out. Now, we got a bit of Jiro for you today. Kristen Faulkner won the stage from a breakaway, takes the mountain jersey. Marta Cavalli finished in second and closed the gap to Annemiek van Vleuten to a minute and 52 seconds. Elisa Longobrini third on the day with Annemiek van Vleuten right behind, but didn't gave, gain enough time on Garcia, who was dropped to move into the GC podium. In general, it was a, it was a hard, hilly day. Uh, Annemiek made some interesting comments after the stage about not being too greedy so it's unclear whether she was just letting people win the bike race which is a bit weird anyway some some kind of strange comments there tomorrow 90k pure sprint day to finish off the giro 
So this will be our penultimate diary. And this one is in from Leah Thomas. Let's listen. Hi everyone, this is Leah Thomas with Trek Segafredo. We just finished stage nine of the Giro and man, it was <laughs> such a stage. Um, you thought yesterday was hilly and they threw in a, another crazy nasty climb at the end that was, I think over four and a half K at 11% and maybe like six or seven K averaging 10.2%. So the top was slightly flatter, but nonetheless it was, quite a steep climb. Uh, it's saving grace was that it was in the shade, which was really nice. Um, today's stage was really exciting. Um, Eliza, well, I guess I'll get to that in a second. It started off pretty fast. Canyon attacked with like five K to go wanting a break to go up the road. Um, and a break did split, but, um, it was too close to the start of the climb, which started at 10 K to get any time and Movistar kept it within like 10 seconds. So, um, we kind of all went into the climb together and, um, a break formed at the bottom of the climb, which I was in. Um, and I don't know, after K or two or three, I have no idea. After some length of time, it got reeled back in and, um, some more attacks went. Kristen Faulkner went up the road at that point. Um, and uh, my effort, I don't know, in the break was, I, I was pretty maxed out and, and attacking before the hill even. And um, so I kind of yo-yoed off the top of that climb um, and caught back on over the top. And uh, eventually um, Balsamo and... Loretta Hansen caught back on as well. So we had five in the front group um, and kind of maintained a gap. Lucinda did an awesome attack on the descent, which is just her, you know, her crazy skill and got a group to go off the front with her, which stayed away um, until maybe 3K left on the final climb. Um, but it was just a great effort. And so, um, Eliza did what she's been doing all week and rode the climbs at her pace, never panicked, stayed within herself, railed the descents, and really, really pushed to try to get um, to third in GC. She got a gap off of Mavi Garcia. Um, I believe it was on the final descent um, and really rode hard to try to, um, you know, gain those seconds. Um, in the end, it wasn't successful. Mavi had enough help from behind um, and I'm sure was strong herself. But um, I think Elisa's really proud of her effort and we're all really proud of her effort. And I think overall, we're just really proud of the team. Everybody fought to keep coming back, to keep coming back. If there's anything we could do to help, um, that was really important. And... I think we accomplished that and I think she felt that support and encouragement. Um, and I'm just really pleased with the week as the whole team. Um, personally, I felt like today I felt a little, I felt a little stronger, which is just rewarding. I have to give huge shouts out to the staff at Trek because I mean, they have worked hours and hours and gone above and beyond to try to help my neck out and really, um, are doing everything to try to help me um, be as successful as I can be. And that's all you can ask from anybody. Everybody's trying their best. And that's what's so cool about this team. Um, so anyway, tomorrow is a flat stage. Um, it's only like 90K or so. Um, should be fast and furious. Um, and hopefully we will have the legs and the opportunity to go for a stage win. We'll see how it all plays out. I know everybody's really tired, but everybody's really tired and so um yeah one more day to go during that diary ronan has pointed out that I th was was penultimate banned yeah we certainly are not allowed to refer to the stage 20 of the tour de france as a penultimate stage of the tour i can't remember why but that definitely happened last year i mean we we, we did say that we were going to put a euro in the swear jar for all of our cliches which is i guess a cliche jar at this point is penultimate 
does penultimate qualify for that? It's not it's a cliche, but let's from now on, let's if you say penultimate for the rest of this tour. After I say this one last penultimate. All right. Starting from now. Penultimate. Can, can we get an update on the award for the rider close to an hour? Oh. The Mayo Sabla? I've been, I've been th yeah, what, yeah, what's, what's uh, it called? The Mayo Sabla, as in Sabla means sand in French. Okay, got it. So the Mayo Sabla, and you know, really, riders picking up the Mayo Sabla at this stage in the race are merely keeping it warm for someone later in when the race. When do we start talking to riders about it? Do we have to wait till well, we get to the mountains? I, I could speak to Chris Joel Jansen. Ooh. who is the new Mayo Sabla. I think he'd be into it. Yeah, he, he rolled into the bus just as I was getting to the bike exchange bus today, and he clearly hadn't realised that he should have gone to the podium to, <laughs> to receive his Mayo Sabla. <laughs> because he came in there, he gave us a quick joke for the SBS we're recording something at the time, and then he went back onto the bus. And he's now at an one hour and 33 seconds, so almost Ooh. the perfect Mayo Sabla We time. should make a podium on the rest day, make our own <laughs> little podium, and then we take it to the team bus every day and they get to stand on it. Well, we Can just we heard, that? we just heard just before this, speaking of making pro riders do silly things, uh, we just heard that George Bennett might be joining us for a game of cricket on the rest day. Yes, being organized by Cyclone Weekly's Chris Marshall Bell. He brought, yeah. he brought a cricket bat with him. Or maybe it was Adam Beckett of Cyclone Weekly. Anyway, they're, they're, they're a funny pair at this tour. They're a brand new, they've been pushed together. The universe is pushing together and they're really, they're lighting the press room up as well, I would, I would say. But yes, apparently he's turning up. There, Mitch Docker also was very, a very big fan. He's already played a game with him outside the press room. I think a game of rugby with George Bennett might be more fun. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're going to risk your whole entire tour with a game of sport. The, he has the rugby ball and you just pick him up and move him wherever you needed to go. I guess so. <laughs> I don't yeah. know a ton about rugby. I know even less about cricket. I've, I, I, they've tried to explain cricket to me a number of times. I do not understand. So I'm just going to show up and try to play baseball. It's like we'll cycling it with a ball. All right. I'm ready. We're going to do it. I know like a, a bit about cricket and nearly as much about cycling. And I don't understand why it's like cycling with the ball. <laughs> but anyway. But yes, we should, on this first rest day museum, we should try and construct a small podium. All and right. then maybe that could be my job for the day. <laughs> That seems like a good job. <laughs> we can never decide how much work to do in the rest days. Do some real washing. Realistically, we all need a, a we need a yeah. bit of recovery, uh, but also there's a lot happening generally. Anyway, we'll we'll, we'll report back post rest day, which is which is imminent now. Nice. But we've got one more thing for you in today's episode, and that is your bit of history from Jose Bain. So, we are in Switzerland. Uh, we know because we had to wait in a big long line to get a sticker on our windshield to get into the country. Cost 40 francs, so apologies to the accounting department. We've now bought two of those because we had to get a new car. Uh, not our fault. Anyway, we are in Switzerland, land of cheese and extremely expensive things, and many languages, uh, but also, apparently, place where Freddie Mercury and Charlie Chaplin spent the last years of their lives. And I'll leave you with that before we pop over to Jose. Yesterday, we arrived in Switzerland, which is the fourth country on our route this year. Today's start is in Aigle, which is the headquarters of the UCI. It's where all the important and not so important decisions are taken. And if you want to work for the UCI, you need to be fluid in French and preferably a few other languages, which many Swiss residents do. Swiss culture is heavily influenced by that of neighbouring countries, Germany, France and Italy. German, French and Italian are all three official languages in Switzerland, as is minority language Romansch. German is spoken as the main language by about 63% of the population, French by 20 and Italian by about 7%, and then Romansch by less than 1% of the Swiss population. Early in the stage, we pass Montreux, where on the shores of Lake Geneva, you will find a statue of Freddie Mercury. The singer of British rock band Queen was a welcome guest in Montreux and had a holiday residence there. And not just anyone. It was 207 square metres on the top floor of the residence Les Tourelles. It had several balconies that offered an unobstructed view of Lake Geneva. The penthouse in which the singer spent the last year of his life in 1991 was sold two years ago, 
after a thorough renovation of 2.3 million euros to a wealthy resident of Geneva. And whether the man is a fan of Queen and Freddie Mercury, it's not known. More famous people liked Switzerland because the country has always been independent politically. Charlie Chaplin moved to Corsier-sur-Fivier, which we find on today's route after 47 kilometres, back in 1952. The famous actor was politically engaged. His film The Great Dictator about Adolf Hitler is one of the highlights of the silent film era, but his political views also got him in trouble. In the USA, Chaplin had appeared before a United States House of Representatives committee charged with tracking and stopping un-American activity. In other words, he was accused of being a communist. After the London premiere of the film Limelight in 1952, the US revoked his visa. And this was during the time of communist fighter McCarthy. The filmmaker would spread a left-wing and pacifist message was the reason. And although no evidence was found that he was a danger to American society, he was eventually banned from entering the US ever again. Chaplin decided to move to Switzerland, where he lived the last 25 years of his life in Corsier-sur-Vivet. He died in 1977, but was not given a peaceful resting place. Three months after his death, his coven was dug up and held for ransom. After an extensive police operation, the coffin was found 11 weeks later at Lake Geneva, near his home. Chaplin was then reburied in Corsier-sur-Fevet, but now safely in a concrete vault. Chaplin's house, Manoir de Bon, is a museum nowadays. It's called Chaplin's World and opened in 2016. There is the manor itself, the surrounding parks and the Hollywood studio that houses the reconstructed sets of his most famous films like The Kid, The Great Dictator, Modern Times and The Circus. Also on display are some of the props and costumes worn by Chaplin in his films like his bowler hat, his cane, his torn trousers, but also his Oscars and the certificate of ennoblement signed by Queen Elizabeth in 1975. At the manor, the television helicopters will most certainly show the fresco of Chaplin in the fields. It was created by placing 800 wooden stakes and nearly 3,000 metres of string. And the reliefs were then created by mowing the grass at different heights to obtain the variations in colour and contrast that make up the face of Charlie Chaplin. Thanks, Jose, for putting that one together. As always, if you miss those... Uh, if you miss an episode, you still want to see what Jose has put together. There is always the written version of that on cyclingtips.com. Great website. And with that, we are going to call it for today. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow. Bye-bye. <laughs>